0: Let's, let's go. Mary, how are we doing back there? Mary, you're wonderful. Okay, so, um, you know, Dr. Justin is new, and his lovely wife, Linda, who are now uh, halftime at the cemetery. Cemetery. <laughs> Sorry, man. Sorry, man. I didn't actually mean that. <laughs> Linda, you'd never look better. Uh, halftime at the seminary. And halftime on the road, which means they're everywhere. I mean, they've been, uh, he can tell you, but they just came back from Prague. But before that, they were in the DR. Before that, they were in London. And before that, uh, and they're go—and good news is they're going back to Spain in a couple of weeks and taking a gift from us to the Spanish church. John Crow has this for you today. Make sure you don't leave without it. That we'd like you to bear that with us. Uh, if you get arrested, we don't know anything about you. So, <laughs> uh, but it's nice to have them back. And frankly... Since he's written a commentary on the text that I was going to do anyway for today, we might as well let the expert play. So, strap in, pray for us, because we'll need it, and off you go, okay? Okay, great. The basket is going to go to Spain, with and, and Linda. So, uh, that's good. We can only, they won't be able to take more than $20,000. <laughs> that's right. So, so that 19000 That's short, okay, of what you usually give.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, great to be with you. The Lord be with you. And with you also Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we continue to bask in the light of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask that you be with us now and open our hearts so that they might burn within us at the hearing of your word and that we might have open eyes in the breaking of the bread. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Bless we the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this happened this week. Scott called and said, would you like to do this? And of course, I love talking about Luke 24. Although you really, the the Bible study's on John, but we're in Luke because it's a parallel story. Um, And it's really hard to know how parallel the stories are. The Thomas story, after eight days, see my hands and my feet, where Thomas is is certainly the feature. There is a, a very similar account in Luke's gospel right after the Emmaus story. And I know that you have studied recently Emmaus. Did you say that? Yeah. You did. Take two big steps your soul. So you can see. Okay, yeah, good, no, good. So got got. Okay, gotcha. Screen. And I and all right, I don't have a wire, so I can come far forward. That's good. So anyway, um, I wanted to get into it a little bit by talking about Emmaus. And I know that one of your themes, if I'm not mistaken, is how do people interact with Jesus and what is the kind of the, the, the way in which that might help us today. And one of the things I always say about Luke's gospel, and I think this is true of the other gospels, is that up until, at least in Luke, up until Emmaus and the breaking of the bread, nobody fully comprehends and understands that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord. It's really amazing. It's complete, you know, not just misunderstanding, but absolutely clueless as to what is really going around and um and Jesus tells them as you know on four occasions in Luke that he must suffer that he must die and on the third day be raised and they still really don't you know comprehend it now it's not their fault and w- this is th- things that people miss right after some of the predictions of passion um Luke writes that God kept this from them that this was something that he closed their eyes to this they didn't they were afraid to ask him about it because they were kind of overwhelmed by it, and I think part of the whole story is that you can't really comprehend the shame and the humiliation of the cross until the resurrection, and until Jesus really opens you up to understand it, and I don't know if you remember this from the Emmaus story, but there are these two moments where it says that their eyes were kept from seeing him so that they might not know him, in order that they might not know him. And in the Greek language, that's a theological passive, which means God's the subject. God held their eyes from knowing him. And the irony there is that Cleopas is his uncle and Simeon is his cousin. It's, it's Cleopas's son. Um, and there's some political things there, which I won't get into, but Simeon is the second bishop of Jerusalem, so he is receiving Luke's gospel at the time when it was written, and he's in the story, so he would have given his Episcopal imprimatur upon the gospel. And that was important because Luke and Paul, I'm actually telling you the story, Luke and Paul, (laughs) Luke and Paul, you know, were together. I mean, Luke's gospel is Paul's gospel. And Paul was not a popular person in Jerusalem. So he needed somebody to affirm his gospel as being legitimate. And, And being one of the Emmaus disciples, Simeon as the bishop would have done that. Anyway, Um, At the end of the story, and Luke, uh, I don't even actually have it here, but you know it, their their eyes were open in the breaking of the bread. Uh, For me, that's the climax of Luke's gospel. When I wrote my thesis on Emmaus, which I did, and then the commentary, I I still am convinced that that is the moment where the first time a human being recognizes Jesus as the crucified and risen Christ. Now, there is a very interesting um, statement here, and I, I put it there. It's not on your handout. It's up here. Uh, Cleopas said, are you the only, and I retranslated this, are you the only, I, I made it into a noun, a stranger or alien in Jerusalem, and you do not know the things that have happened in her in these days. Now, Cleopas calls Jesus a stranger. And when I was writing on this, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. This is the word that is used in Leviticus for those who are Gentiles, who are being welcoming into Israel, okay, by circumcision, by faith, you know, and into the community of Israel. And and taking care of aliens and sojourners is maybe one of the most important things among the Jews. If you are an alien, you are a sojourner, you must be welcomed in by the Jews. This is also the word that's used of Christians, strangers and aliens in the household of God, from some of the epistles, we're strangers and aliens in this world. And what what I sort of developed on this and I got some good feedback uh, that this is perhaps a way to think about this. In calling Jesus a stranger or an alien, they're actually making a very astute confession as to who he is. Jesus is an alien. He comes from a different world, he comes from heaven. And he breaks into this world, you know. The he's talking about the incarnation. And, and I always trace this out by the Nicene Creed. He came down from heaven, was crucified, died, buried, and then on the third day and on the 40th, he went back to heaven. You can, you, When you say it, from heaven to heaven, there's that journey where it's almost like a, an invasion into this world, down into the, the tomb. And the, the parallel from John's Gospel is like a seed dies. It's like nature, the rhythm of nature. You descend, you die, and then you rise again and you go back to heaven. And he is an alien. He's a stranger. He's not of this world. I mean, he is the God-man. He is unlike anyone else. And in the incarnation, as an alien, and this is very important, it's a great theme of the the Gospel of Luke, especially in terms of the, the hospitality at a table, Jesus shows hospitality to his creation by breaking in as the creator, come to his creation to make all things new. To, to bring in a new creation, and how does he do it? He does it by casting out demons, healing the sick, forgiving sins, raising the dead. You know that, it 's the ministry of release, and that's, I think that 's key to luke's gospel, and it 's key to Paul too. I teach Galatians, and Paul ends the epistle to the Galatians with you know circumcision doesn 't matter, neither does uncircumcision, but what matters is new creation that 's the work of Jesus, the creator coming now to restore the creation to what it was intended to be. And so the, the whole point of Jesus as an alien is somebody who comes from another world to make right what has gone wrong, to heal it, to, to, to make things right. And one of the, the issues in the Gospel, and this goes to your theme, is how do people treat Jesus? You know, how do they welcome him? How do they show hospitality to them? And one of the ironies of the gospel is tax collectors and sinners welcome him. You know? I mean, Luke 15, Jesus eats with sinners and welcomes them. It's one of the reasons he gets crucified. But the religious establishment rejects him. They're the ones who don't show hospitality. And a major theme in Luke's gospel is, you know, what happens to the body of Jesus? Only Luke has this because of the the infancy narrative. His body, when he's born, is wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. It's a sign of the incarnation. His body is taken down from the cross, wrapped in cloth bands by the women. It's always women. Tenderly to bury him. Sign of the atonement. And then when Peter, in 2412, Luke 24, 12, runs to the tomb, what, what does he see? Only the cloth bands. There's a sign of the resurrection. So the, the bands that wrap the body of Jesus from his birth up until his death are signs of incarnation, atonement, and resurrection. And of course, his body is anointed by probably Mary Magdalene in preparation for his birth. I mean, for his birth, his death. So I mean there's the anointing of that body. Follow the body of Jesus. Well, what in terms of hospitality, what do people do to his body? It's brutal. You know, they brutalize it. And that's how he is treated by the people who should understand who he is, who should understand the scriptures, who should read the Old Testament and know who he is. And and from the Emmaus story, you know that that's what he chastises the Emmaus disciples for not believing the Old Testament, all the things that the prophets have spoken. So this brings us to our text. This is the prelude to it. And this is at the end of the Emmaus story. Notice the, the Emmaus disciples rise up from the table where they, there's this incredible moment of recognition in the breaking of the bread in that very hour. They return to Jerusalem. They find the 11 gathered, you know, and the others with them. Cleopas and his, his uh, son would have been part of this. These are probably the 70 who are sent in Luke uh, 10, and then they this is ironic i don 't know if the irony came out when Scott taught it, but in reality, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon, you know okay, great that 's great, but you wait till we tell you what happened to us on the road to Emmaus, oh my oh my goodness, you know He walked with us, he talked to us, he taught us all this stuff, and then we recognized him in the breaking of the bread and <clears throat> In my thesis, this was one of the climaxes for me. They were expounding this is the word for interpretation, exegesis is what it really is. The things in the way, that's the teaching on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And there you have word and sacrament. There are the the structures of the liturgy right there. The teaching on the road where scriptures is opened up creates burning hearts, right? But doesn't create recognition. You need the breaking of the bread. They have to go together, word and meal. And those are the means for mission, I mean, it's, it's really interesting in this new role that I have as a career missionary, all the things I've been doing all my life, this is the, these are the means for mission. The mission comes through the expounding of the scriptures and the, and the breaking of the bread. It's, it's, and, and this is table fellowship. This is, this is the, the nature of our life together, as we say. Now, there's a very interesting thing that happens here, and I, and I put in blue in that very hour, because in Luke's Gospel, and these are the things that I observe as I'm kind of writing commentaries and thinking about this for a doctoral thesis, that is the last time reference in Luke's Gospel. Okay? And Luke is really incredibly strict about time reference. He's always telling you when it is. And in the Emmaus story, there are five of them Five times he tells you it's either the first day of the week, or it's the third day, or now this is in that hour. It's the end of the Emmaus story, you know. And it's the end of the three days. And the three days are important. It starts with a meal in Luke, which is the Last Supper, the, the Passover, and it ends with Emmaus. So he frames it with a meal, shows you how important it is. But then there there are no more time references, and you can you can just see this. I mean, and it, as they come together, he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as, as they were saying this, it looks like it's ongoing. Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. Now, from here on, there are no more time references. And back in the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century, when you know, some of the more higher critical, liberal you know, critics were commenting on Luke, and, and we had to respond to this. They said, when Luke wrote his gospel, he was confused he didn't realize that the ascension for example was 40 days after he thought it all happened on the same day so he blended it all together in luke and then when he got to acts he realized his mistake and then he he corrected himself and said that the ascension was 40 days later and then of course pentecost 50 days later and that's how they that's how they described luke they didn't early um, higher critics didn't like luke cuz he wasn't well, that's a long story, but they didn't like Luke. It's, it's, I, I won't go there. Um, but, I mean, it is interesting. How do you respond to that? How do you, I mean, because they're noticing the same things I am. The Luke is carefully marking time, and then all of a sudden there is no time. Well, I think the explanation, and this moves us into why our text is so important here, is that once bread is broken and eyes are opened, we have entered eternity. We've entered the eighth day. We are now in the Eucharistic sacramental world. So we don't have to mark time. We are in eternity now. And Luke really wants to make that point. Now, if you read the parallel in John's Gospel, John tells you eight days later is when Thomas, it's eight days, you know, which is the octave of Easter. And that's probably when this happened. Maybe not. Maybe this was another appearance. But, I mean, one thing blends into the other in Luke now, because time doesn't matter. We're in eternity. You know, we're in that, that world now that, that has really no marking of time. And when you're in the church, all of time collapses together, past, present, and future. That's what it means to do things in remembrance of him. To remember is to have all time collapse in the eternal one, now that the infinite one is present in the creation you know, in the finite world, we, we're in eternity. And Luke does that by giving you no more time references. Now, in, in, the, in the Greek, Jesus isn't referred to here. I, I added that word, Jesus. And G, it's just, G, and he himself stood in the midst of them. Now, when Jesus sent out the 70, which is only in Luke, this is in Luke 10, um, it's very similar to sending out of the, the 12. Go out, you know, preach the kingdom, and heal. But when he sends the 70, he says, don't greet anybody on the road, which is kind of, you know, why not? It's the same, oh, don't take a bag, don't take, you know, uh, 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 sandals and all that kind of stuff. You're going to be dependent on the Lord of the harvest. But then he says, don't greet anyone on the road. And the greeting on the road was the, the Greek greeting, which all the Greeks would do, which was kairé, rejoice, like, you know, hi, how are you? You know, good day or whatever. He says, when, when you go into a house, and the house is where the presence is, where the preaching is, where the healing is, you say peace to that house. Peace, shalom. you know, And that's that sense of eternal well-being by the presence of the Creator in your place, now in the presence of the 70 who bear Christ in their preaching and in their healing. That's the new greeting of the kingdom. So the first thing Jesus does... When he appears to the 11 in a house is he says what the, he sent the 70 to do, to say peace to this house. Now, when you go to the liturgy at 11 or next time you go to the liturgy, count out how many times peace is used. Peace is the number one word in the liturgy. I've counted it, so it's the kind of thing I do, you know. <laughs> you know, and if, I mean, if you do the ironic benediction, it's the last thing you hear, you know. Peace. Peace is the, the number one thing. And, and Jesus coming and standing in the midst of them and saying, peace, it's just, it's a remarkable statement. Um, they're, of course, scared out of their minds, you know? They think they're seeing a ghost. That's really what the word is. We translate it spirit, but it's a ghost. It's a phantom. They, they, they can't believe that this is real. And one of the points of this passage, as well as the Thomas passage, is to demonstrate the reality of the crucified and resurrected body as being real, as being, you know, it's, it's, a, it's sort of kind of good old rationalistic proof, you know. Here he is. And, and when, he, when he says to them, why are you troubled? Why do these questionings, it's really dialoguing, it rise in your heart. He knows what they're, they're uh, thinking. And he knows they're troubled. Now, that word is the word that is used of Zechariah and Mary... When the angel appears to them, they're troubled, you know, and Mary is intensely troubled. You know, it's interesting how these words carry forward. And, and what is the trouble? The trouble is that this is, a, this is the appearance of an epiphany, a theophany, a most remarkable thing that they, they can't believe. And the language that Luke is going to use, which I love, is disbelieve for joy. You know, he, he, they, it's too good to be true. That's what it means. Um, here I'm going go to go to my translation, because I have it highlighted here. And, and Jesus does what He did with Thomas: "See my hands and my feet." although in, in John's gospel, it's not hands and feet, it's hands and side. Because why? Blood and water come out of the side, and only in John's Gospel and in John's epistles, those are described as what? The testimony, and and obviously references to the sacraments, baptism, and the and the supper. They flow out of Jesus' side. This is how he. So it's hands and side. I love that. That's just one of those little touches. But here it's hands and feet, which you you know these are the scars, these are the marks, these are the stigmata. And then, uh, this is how I translate it. This is the great, this is one of the I Ams. Now, Luke has I Ams. John has, I mean, John's gospel is centered around the I Ams. I'm sure you've been probably talking about that. I am the bread of life, etc. But this is where Jesus says, I am. And they know what that means. Boom, you know, this is Yahweh. This is the presence of, and, and Jesus now, in Luke, is identifying himself as Yahweh. Now, he's done that before, but remember, they didn't understand it. Now that he's risen from the dead, understanding is going to happen. And, of course, the Emmaus disciples saw him as I am myself. So this is a, this is a huge statement here. The, he is the great I am. Um, and then he says, you know, not just see, but these are, these are all your senses. And I know, Scott, to touch, see, because a phantom, a ghost, which is what they were thinking, does not have, and I love this, flesh and bones, and the word in, in Greek is ostea, osteoporosis, ostea, bones, you know, flesh and bones, not flesh and blood, but bones, so you, can, you could touch it, you could see that it's solid. Now, it's interesting, and, and, I, and I don't know what, Maybe my colleagues think about this. He shows them his hands and his feet. And in John's Gospel, you know, Peter says, unless I put my fingers in his hands, you know, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Never says that he does. Never says that he does. And you know what happens when Mary Magdalene doesn't say it. Linda, look it up. Thomas doesn't say it. Look it up. You can look it up. She always disbelieves for joy. But for joy. (laughs) She disbelieves me for joy. Yeah. (laughs) Look but but and and you know it's interesting because remember Mary Magdalene wants to touch him, and you know no me tocare you know the the famous paintings do not touch me you know, um, and he t- talks about his ascension I must go to the Father, um, so I mean it, it, he they don't need to, they don't need to and I think part of the reason is they touch him. In the Eucharist, that's where they touch him now. The, the, he's he's not going to be present for them as he was before. It's different. It's different, you know. That's why he disappears in the breaking of the bread. It happens, you know. And I I always tell students, it's not like he's sitting there at the table, you know, and he blesses the bread, breaks it, you know, and hands it out. And then as he's handing it out, it falls on the table because he's gone. No, I mean, they start to eat, and then in the process of eating, he's just gone. You know, He's disappeared. Because he's not going to be there for them like that. He's going to be there in the breaking of the bread. There's an interesting parallel in Luke. And again, this just shows you how, I mean, Luke is just, he's making a point. The very first thing Jesus does in his ministry in Nazareth, the sermon in Nazareth, which is all about preaching, which is all about the word, all about this new creation, um, you know, they want to see a miracle. The, the, his people in Nazareth, and he won't give them one. You know, show us a miracle like you did in Capernaum, and Jesus doesn't do it, you know. And so when he preaches to them and basically condemns them, they're so upset. Only time in Luke's gospel, outside of the crucifixion, where people physically try to kill him. They plot to kill him, but nobody physically tries, except his hometown. They take him to the precipice where the city's built, want to throw him off, and then what, is ha- what happens? he passes through the midst of, me. he disappears, you know. There's the word, he disappears. And now in the sacrament, he disappears, the word and meal. The two disappearances are at the very beginning and the very end. And I think that's why nobody touches him. I love this, this saying, it's, it makes no sense. You know, how do you disbelieve for joy? I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful statement, you know? And I think it's parallel, and this isn't in Luke, it's in Mark, where the man who has the the son who is healed says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That is us. I believe, help my unbelief. That's what disbelief for joy means. Too good to be true. It's It's beyond our capacity to understand that that he has the power, not only to raise himself, but to raise us as well, and they know this, um, and they're amazed. And then this is one of my favorite moments. It's what I think people would call random. I mean, here's this sublime moment. See my hands and my feet. I am myself, you know. And then their response—they're disbelieving for joy and amazed. And then he turns to me and he goes, "Hey." Has anybody got anything to eat around here, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's like, what, Jesus? Are you hungry? I mean, you want something to eat? I mean, and of course, what's the point? I mean, it's to demonstrate that he is flesh and he's bones. That's what he is, you know? I mean, he's going to eat. Resurrected bodies get hungry. And this affirms what Luke says later on in a sermon that uh, he records of Peter to Cornelius in Acts 10. It's really a very important verse, Act 10, 48, where it says that, that Jesus ate and drank with them after he rose from the dead. So for, for those 40 days, that's what he does. And you know the very famous um, breakfast on the beach in John's Gospel, you probably get to that. You know, and how many fish? 153, to be exact. You know, and that's that's a I, I always forget the the meaning of it in terms of it, but there is a it's a number seventeen times seven something like that. That no, maybe it's not that because that's not one hundred fifty three. But there's a there's a there's a it's a number that's divisible only by something. There's a there's a reason for that. I shouldn't even bring it up because I don't know the answer to it. But, <laughs> but there is a reason for it. But it's the number seven that's important in all that. But anyway, and I love the specificity they gave him. Roasted fish. Roasted. Some of your translation have broiled, which isn't quite right. Roasted. On a fire. You know? Like they had breakfast on the beach, you know? It was a, it was a piece of roasted fish. Which reminds us that the Passover lamb must be roasted. So we're, in the, we're still in the Passover. It's the roasted fish. And remember, the fish is Jesus. The fish is Jesus. And in the feeding of the 5,000. The bread. You know, always think of the bread is important. But bread and fish. And there's a, in the old catacombs, there was, a, it's one of the earliest images of the fish, and then the cup, and then the bread. And that was the Eucharistic symbolism. So the fish, you know, ichthus is the word for Jesus Christ. ichthus, God, Theos, God, Son, and uh, Savior, ichthus. So, um so the fish is a, a representation always of Jesus. And he eats it before them. And so it's a, you know, it's, it's a demonstration that he is, in fact, a resurrected body of flesh and bones there before him you know, to be seen. Now, what they're doing here is what the Emmaus disciples did. They're showing him hospitality. That's the key. You know? And if you go back to the Emmaus story... and and you know this, that he pretends to be going further. You know, he's like, and that's always so weird, you know. He wants to go on. And why does he want to go on? I mean, or why does he pretend to go on? Because he wants them to invite him in. And how are they going to now, now that he has shown hospitality to a creation by dying and rising for it, and now that they've had burning hearts from the opening up of scriptures, are they going to respond to him? like no one else has really before and and they do they do they prevail upon him it's a strong word you know it's like they cast themselves on the ground and throw their arms around him. don't go jesus you know and he comes in he's invited into the house and there's an opportunity for table fellowship the same thing here you know he comes to them he comes with the offer of peace he comes with hospitality he comes showing his body now the body that was wrapped in swaddling clothes wrapped in Cloth bands coming down from the cross. That body now with the scars, on his, he shows them that body. He, 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 and he wants them to, to show, them, show him hospitality, which is why he asks, do you have anything to eat here? You know, it's like his wanting to go further is a parallel there. And they give him, they show him hospitality. They welcome him in. Um, the next passage, which I don't have here, is his final teaching to them. And it's the, the passage that I use when I used to teach homiletics on kind of the perfect outline on how to preach the gospel. It's his final words to them. It's a magnificent passage. Um, I want to give you some time for questions. There is, at the very bottom, and I apologize that I, miss, I mistyped structure on your text, but there's this circular structure, and I'd forgotten that there was one here. I don't teach this text very often, not quite like this, so it's fun to have a chance to do that. But there's this circular structure where the A's and the A ones, the B's, the B ones, the C's, and look what's in the middle. you know I am myself. You know? That should be not here, but I am myself. Um, <clears throat> and that, you know, to see my hands, my feet touch and see me, that frames it, you know. So here's Jesus right in the middle, um, <clears throat> in the breaking of the bread. In, in twenty four thirty one, where their eyes are opened and they recognize him in the breaking of the bread, there's a, a little chiasm right there. I think you have to explain chiasm. Chiasm is a is a circ, is a is a is an X. Where it actually turns into a circle, so you start in the one way and you end in the same way, and then you these are these are parallels. Right, it's like a target. If I had a board here, I'd show you the circle in the center. Is it? It's like a target, and there's where your eyes come. Put the board behind you draw. Yeah, I mean, it's like <laughs> it, the X is 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 what it comes from. So it would be A, B, B one, A one. But if you draw that out, the, the Bible is written, old and New Testament, in what is called the principle of balance. <clears throat> So almost all texts have, you know, kind of simple structures like this. They're called synonymous parallelisms, where these are paralleled. And they're echoed again, you know. There's there's a theme here, and it's not exactly the same, but it's similar, and then likewise all the way through. And then if you get fancy, you stretch it out in in a circular way. So it, here's the circular effect, see? And then you have target. What's interesting in most texts, this is like the Annunciation with Mary. There's a beautiful chiasm there. Uh, the person is moving into an encounter with Jesus, or in Mary's case, with the Holy Ghost. And here she's unmarried. She's a virgin, okay? Okay. And as she comes in here, she's troubled, that's very important, very, she's very troubled. But as she moves towards an encounter with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon her, there's a change here. And it's all, almost always in the center is, a, is, is Christ. There's an, a, the presence of Christ. And she comes out of this, it's paralleled. she's still unmarried, but she, she's still a virgin, but she's now with child. OK? And she's not troubled. Let it be to me according to your words. So something happens to the person here that changes their status here. So somebody's sick, they have a counter with Jesus, they come out well, that kind of thing. And here you can see that, the, to me, the, the best part of this chiasm is that they start trouble, and then they end up being disbelieving for joy. There's the change in them. So I think that highlights it. And they come in to the to the, to the reality of Jesus being the great I am. So it's a lovely little, it it's actually works. This is great for, for preaching, you know. Um, and and the, uh, this may not seem to be a parallel, but to say peace to you and do you have anything to, to eat are parallel, you know. They're, they're basically the same idea. You know, I am here to eat with you. I am here to have table fellowship with you, to sit down at table and, and welcome you into, into this, this new reality of the resurrected presence. So, anyway, it's hard to do it in English, actually. <laughs> I usually do this in Greek, it's kind of fun. So, English is really kind of a, it's, it's kind of an impediment You know, (laughs) I mean, the Greek is so beautiful and it's so clear. And I mean, to try to even diagram English is so much more difficult, you know, and I've been doing it in Spanish now, which is much easier. Spanish, Spanish is closer in grammar to Greek than it's got more options. So you can find the verbs easier, more easily. We have about seven minutes. Questions? Are you following me? It's just a great moment. This is a great season, you know, of the resurrection. It's what it's all about. This is why we exist. We're resurrected people. Um, Yesterday, I was uh, at a board meeting at Valpo. That's why we're here, because we were two hours closer to Chicago than we were before. And uh, we had one of the new professors at Valpo, who's a Russian Orthodox deacon. And... um, (laughs) he gave the devotion in the morning and it was a knock out of the park, you know, about what it means to be resurrected people. (laughs) And he talked about the Russian liturgy, the Russian Orthodox liturgy. It's very interesting. And he had a picture there of the tomb and how they, you know, they they put the tomb, they bring a tomb into the church for their services. And he had a picture of his daughter who was going there to venerate the tomb And, and he talked all about how and he had the litanies from the resurrection. But it was a magnificent kind of proclamation of why we are people who are in a sense constituted by the fact that, you know, touch and see. I, I do not have I, I have flesh and bones just as as you see me having, not like a ghost. So and we're still disbelieving for joy. It's too good to be true. But it is the great hope. It's what we're founded on. So you
0: don't get
1: Oh, you want to go to something mundane like that after the resurrection? Oh, my gosh, Scott. <laughs> you got to be kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well. I'm just curious about what's, what, I mean, what's
0: happened with you
1: and yeah. what this means for
0: you and well, the church. Well, you
1: know I've been working kind of a, a sort of ad hoc with uh, Spain and, and, and then getting more into Spanish-speaking stuff. And I, I started my life, because my dad worked for GE when I was 13, we moved to Mexico, so we had Mexico, and then later to Spain, so I had this at the beginning of my life, but I kind of gave up Spanish to a certain extent. Went rusty. But anyway, a a year ago, February, I was invited to a meeting in the Dominican Republic where they were going to start a seminary, and I'm a curricular guy. I do curriculum, so they needed my expertise on that, so we were putting together a curriculum for this new seminary, and there was a... uh, uh, the, one of the, the heads of missions were there, and, of course, the regional director was there. And there was a, uh, a deal that they had given one of the St. Louis professors to be half-time at the seminary and half-time on the field, meaning four months of travel, two months of you know, getting ready to do all that kind of stuff, and then six months at the seminary, which is sort of what I was doing already. I'd been, for the last three falls, working with Spain and other places, And then they they basically said, would you like to serve on the faculty at the DR Seminary in the fall? As we get started, you could be there to get us going for the next few years. And so we talked about it. I talked to President Rast. Uh, Linda retired from her job, so she could go with me. That was a prerequisite. She had to be able to go. And so we put it together, and in the fall, I will be teaching. I'm I am the associate director of the seminary, <laughs> which, which, yeah, right. I mean, which means that that when there are problems, he calls me and asks my advice. <laughs> the director is a tremendous guy. I never knew him before I started working in the DR. Joel Frishy, and it's interesting. He was the uh, admissions counselor at St. Louis, so he's the director, and he's a wonderful human being. Linda can tell you. Just uh, tr- he's a, one of these guys who has no ego. None. He just wants to serve. And I really believe that after working with him. And he's such a pleasure to work with. And he and I really have, have become very, very, very good friends and good colleagues. And then we've got a couple other initiatives. I'm still working with Spain. So we'll be going there in the two major meetings. One is in, in June and one is in October. So I will attend those and maybe even on other occasions where they need me. Um, This is exciting. We're starting a Lutheran university in Montevideo, Uruguay. And it's a Lutheran university. And it's the first Lutheran university in a Spanish-speaking country. And Uruguay is the most secular Spanish-speaking country in the world, more than Spain. I mean, they pride themselves on their atheism. So here we have this... And it's a remarkable story. Uh, It it, it actually is a Brazilian project. There's this huge university in Brazil, which, of course, is Portuguese. uh, So they do have this huge university. And they sent, 20 years ago, this young kid, 25, 24, something like that, to Mm -hmm. sort of be the principal of this small little primary school in one of the nicest neighborhoods in Montevideo, where the president's palaces, botanical gardens, where all the government embassies are and stuff. It's a beautiful neighborhood. Montevideo is like a European city in South America. Nicest city there is. I think. So anyway, this guy in 20 years has developed this school into over 2,000 kids. It's got a high school. um, It's a Lutheran school. It's a Lutheran school. school. And I mean, all the people who are anybody, it's the best school in in Montevideo. And in, in that way, it's the best school in Uruguay. Well, this this guy is a natural-born entrepreneur. It, it, it's, it, this is what they... Right next to the botanical gardens is this castle, and it's a German castle from the 19th century, a family's owned. It's a big building, a big piece of property, you know. And the family lived there until about 20 years ago, and they trashed the place. All their junk was in the back, 40, you know. And... Um, it needed restoration, and nobody could afford to restore it, you know. And Maro, was his name, Mauro Roll, uh, the, the principal of this Lutheran school, um, he had been borrowing money from the bank, always paying it back. So they come to him and they say, here, we're going to make a deal with you. We will give you this castle for the equivalent of a dollar. Okay, it's yours. If you give us a little corner where we can build branch of our bank. We'll give you the money to, to pay the mortgage on the bank. So he didn't have to pay for the bank. And the castle's yours. you know. Now, Morrow's the kind of entrepreneurial guy. All this junk's on the back 40. So what does he do? He hires a trucking firm, 400 loads of stuff. But he gives all the truckers their kids free tuition. <laughs> OK? That was no. Now, he, uh, in his school, he has a maintenance staff of about 20 people so this big school and it's all in it's amazing because it's in the neighborhood so it's he's built it he buys this property and adds you know connects it he went to the university with a couple of his main maintenance guys and they went and learned how to restore old buildings and he is teaching his maintenance staff and as he gets a little money he restores a little of this gets a little money he restores a little of this and this this thing is is coming together and on the back end of this, he's going to build a five, a five-story building, which is going to be a Lutheran University of about two thousand people. Well, anyway, I'm on I'm the ad- advisory member on this board, and my task is to find people to to teach. Scott, <laughs> it's bilingual, so you can teach in English, and we need Lutherans, and you know, and Pat Ferry, who's the president of Mequon, is on the board. Jack Price is the one of the guys. So this this could be one of the most extraordinary things. And this guy will do it. The Lutheran Foundation is lending him the money, something like 20 million bucks or something to do it. And he'll do it. He'll do it. I know he will do it. And if you saw this castle, the high school is in there, and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of falling apart, but it works. And every year he opens up the the, the castle for people in Montevideo because it's it's like one of the iconic buildings in Montevideo. And 150,000 people go through there at like five bucks a shot. Do the math.
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, this guy's amazing. And if you met him, he is just the most quiet, unassuming guy. And he just, he's got this vision. And so, so we go down there once a year and, and listen to him tell the story. Yes.
0: Last thing, would you give us a quick
1: introduction to our vicar? To your vicar. Oh, your vicar. I, I think you have a, a real treat coming along. His name is Miguel Barcelos. And um, he's from Portugal. There's one pastor in Portugal, and he's the bishop and the pastor. <laughs> 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 and he, Adelberto Hilbert, a wonderful guy. And um, Miguel's family is from the Azores, which is really where we have the strongest Lutheran family. And I think they came into the church through a, we have an Air Force base there, a Missouri Synod chaplain who was out there. And, and so... His family is a very strong Lutheran family. There's not a lot of Lutheran presence in Portugal. Um, Miguel is is kind of an intellectual. He works at the University of Lisbon. He's got a job there. They're actually paying him while he's here. He's a research director. He's getting his doctorate there. Um, I I mean, he's written some of the finest papers I've ever had. He's just a brilliant guy. And um, and he really, I mean, I think I can say this. He really wanted... The St. John's experience, for the sake of what he he will be the bishop of Portugal, he'll be the pastor there, and he'll be he he wanted that sense of of what church is that you really don't find many places in the Missouri City, and you certainly find it here, and so he's very excited to come. His English is very good. His accent he's got a little accent, but I think you'll be able to understand him fine. Um, but engage him. I mean, he he knows a lot. He's a wonderful guy. He's a young man. He's probably what would you say, Lenny? Late twenties. He's he's we've we've kind of embraced him. He's been to our house for the last two Easters, and he's just a delightful guy. I think it'll be a little different for you, but I think you'll just love having him. He's he's a ter- terrific guy, and he'll soak it up. You know, he'll soak it up, and he'll. I mean, I love with your pastors, especially on your a lot of the lay folks here he will he will be an intellectual powerhouse and he'll love the conversation that you'll have with him so he's a terrific guy i'm so happy he's he's going to be here it's going to be it's very good for us cuz we're developing a very close relationship between spain and portugal cuz we're you know we are the iberian peninsula <laughs> <laughs> so there is i mean it, it, and 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 we always invite them and they come to our forums like i'll see his well his his lovely wife Adalberto, the bishop, you know, he's an older guy. He's probably my age. And um, he and his wife were there for the ordination of Jose Luis. And he'll probably come to the foro. And he's he's a delightful guy. Great sense of humor. And he and and Miguel are very close. So. Thank you. Pray for us. We should go to church. Yeah, we should go to church. Thank you. (laughs) Lord God, Heavenly Father, give us joy in this season that we are your resurrected people. And grant us your grace always as we have communion with you in your body and in your blood. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.